Amen. Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. Both all of us here and those listening and watching online, welcome to you also. I am Pastor David Nigro and I'm filling in for Pastor Rick Gaston this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 21. Our consideration this morning is titled, A Disobedient Sacrifice. If you would, why don't you stand for a moment as we read this verse. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. You may be seated. You know, it's been my observation in life that uh, both young and old want to immediately distance themselves from fault whenever they're caught. It starts at the ripe old age of, I don't know, say about two, right? When you catch that little one with their hand in the proverbial cookie jar. And then what happens is there's a whole bunch of excuses and denial and blame shifting that follows. And, you know, in a two-year-old, it's quite entertaining, but not so much as when it's an adult. The backdrop to our our verse this morning is during the time when Israel is under the leadership of its first king, Saul. And he has been given instruction by God through Samuel the prophet to utterly destroy every living thing, man and beast, of their enemy, the Amalekites. But instead of following these instructions, both the king and the people, they acted according to their own desires. And now, when Samuel confronts Saul, he tries to distance himself from all of this, saying that what was done was done um, as an act of worship. You see, the people, they've taken the best of the spoils so that they could sacrifice them. Perhaps you remember a similar example of this blame-shifting when Moses returns from receiving the Ten Commandments and he sees the people dancing around a a golden calf and he is just infuriated. And so he approaches his brother Aaron and he's looking for an explanation. We read in Exodus 32, he approaches Aaron and he says, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And so Aaron said, and I want you to pay careful attention to his answer in this. Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods that we shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire And out came this calf. So it's a pretty comical explanation as we look at it. But, you know, the the fact is the comedy ends when we look at what's happening here is actually sin. Saul's instructions from God were very simple. Kill everything. He couldn't claim that there was a lack of understanding. That somehow this wasn't clear because... It was extremely clear. So instead, what he does is he tries to, one, distance himself from the guilt. 
saying it's, it's an act of the people. As if as king, he had nothing to say over what the people did. And then too, he says, it's really all about worshiping God. We didn't kill the animals as instructed because we were taking the best of those animals and we would then offer them to the Lord. I mean, after all, what can be wrong with worshiping God? I don't know what it is about man that makes us think we can decide what commandments we're going to obey or not obey or how we are going to approach and worship our God, but we have been doing this for a very long time. And unfortunately, that same attitude we see in Saul back then, it exists today. As people continue to choose what it is that they're going to obey when it comes to the things of God. And in how they will approach worshiping him. They, not God, it seems, will dictate what that looks like. Well, let's take a look at Samuel's response, which is God's response, really, to Saul in the following two verses, 22 and 23. So Samuel said, as the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So Samuel is saying to him, do you really think that somehow God takes a greater pleasure in the killing of an animal than he does in the obedience of his people? The further implication in all of this is, do you not understand that it is because of sin that the death of an animal is even required? Now, you know, before we dive further into all the details of what Samuel is saying, don't miss the punchline in this. Because Saul has rejected the word of God, God has rejected him from being king. This statement in and of itself should cause us to recognize very quickly the seriousness of God's position requiring the adherence to his word. Yet what we see today, I think, is quite the opposite. There's a dismissal of God's word among so many Christians. And unfortunately, there are now many churches who promote the same attitude. Now, I don't know if you experience this in the places you go and those that you talk to who name Christ, but I often find that that is the case. There is a big disconnect. They don't understand what God's word has to say, or perhaps they don't care. I'm not really sure which. But they, like the churches in many cases they attend, have declared on their own how it is that they will follow God and how they will worship him independent of what he has to say about it. At the point of this encounter with Samuel, Saul's issue with disobedient sacrifices has already begun. This isn't his first offense. You see, previously, Israel was getting ready to go to war with the Philistines. And Samuel tells Saul to wait in Gilgal. He tells him, wait here for seven days. Until I return. And so now Israel is a pretty new army, not very sure of themselves, and the Philistines, much better and more skilled at war, are some 30,000 strong. And so Israel is frightened. And Saul, their new king, they're looking to him for, 
for leadership, for guidance. And so he then becomes impatient and he decides, I need to make supplication to the Lord. We're about to go into battle and we cannot do it unless we first sacrifice unto God. And so he calls for animals in which he can conduct both a burnt offering and a peace offering. But this, you see, is unlawful. He is not allowed to do this, but he does it anyway. Shortly thereafter, Samuel returns. And he sees now what he has done. And God is done with, at this point, he's done with Saul. And so now, this is his second time that we're dealing with him, unwilling to just be obedient to what God has to say. Impatience in the one case and in the second, I think he feared the people. In life, you know, intentions don't necessarily define outcomes. In this case, perhaps Saul had good intentions. Maybe. I don't know. But the fact is that we can have good intentions and still have a poor outcome. It's just how life is. And I think it's important to understand this is why it's, it is critical for you to be led by the Spirit of God and not led by good ideas or what we think we should be doing when it comes to spiritual things. This is why it's also critical to know the Word of God. Because without knowing the Word of God, how will you know what He is like? What He wants from you? What it is that He expects from us. You'll just make it up and you'll get it wrong as so many have done before. All too often I see Christians behaving in ways that they they show clearly there's a lack of knowledge when it comes to God's word. And or if they have any knowledge of his word, a proper understanding is something they lack. They might be zealous, but you know, zeal is not a substitute for knowledge of God. This is why Paul tells Timothy not to lay hands on anyone hastily. But Christians, they do this all the time. I've seen it where, you know, they'll take someone who's not ready, not ready, and then put them in a position of leadership and then watch them make a gigantic mess of things. You know, in the medical community, we call this kind of thing malpractice. Yet, Christians seem to do this. Saul may have had good intentions by conducting those sacrifices himself, but it was a direct violation of God's instructions, and he knew it when he did it. At its core, rebellion is the exercise of self-will over that of God's expressed will. It is the essence of sin, in that while we know what God commands us, We choose our own will instead. And I think it has been that way since the very very first sin was committed. And I think the manner in which we are tempted to rebel is often the same as it was when sin first entered the garden. The devil comes along and he asks, has God really said? Planting that seed of doubt. Challenging then, you know, God's word. And then he comes along and he suggests that you deserve whatever it is that you want or want to do. And that God's holding you back from it. Well, 
he continues to do this very thing. And this is how it played out that first time in the garden, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now I will point out that Eve added something else. God never said that you couldn't touch it. She added that. The devil bypassed it. It really wasn't important at that point. But the formula that he used here, he uses over and over again today. Unfortunately, it's still effective. The Apostle John, in his first letter, calls attention to the three areas that we struggle with in life that line up with this. 1 John 2, 15 and 16, we read this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the lust of the flesh for Eve is that she looks at this food knowing, oh, that's good for the body. And of the eyes, it was alluring and pleasant to look at. And the pride of life was in the desire to gain the knowledge of good and evil and to be more like God. The devil continues to use this over and over again. But let me ask you something. Do we recognize that this is what's going on when we're tempted with a choice to obey God or not? Or do we begin to make justification as to why we don't need to obey him? I think it's easy to read these verses in the Bible, these stories that we look at, and you you can criticize so easily. It's quite easy to do, isn't it? We look and we know all the right things. We say, oh, look at that. How did they do that? We wag our finger. We we remind them of all the things they should have done. As if it doesn't apply to us as if we are in some way different. But that's not truly the case. You know, one example that I've seen over the years where Christians, I think, often cave in is that in the area of relationships. It's just one of those things. You know, the heart wants what it wants. And so you have some guy or gal who decides they're going to now date an unbeliever. They, being a Christian, they're going to date an unbeliever. And in the worst case, they're going to marry him. And all of this, despite what God has to say about not doing this, that you're forbidden to do that. And you can take them to the scripture. You can point these things out to them. You can tell them the horror stories that often accompany such things. And they're going to look at you and say, yeah, but, but I love them. It's, I think, easy if we're honest with ourselves to understand how We can give in to what our heart wants, even when we know it's wrong. You know, Paul writes to the Corinthians. He wrote a lot to the Corinthians because he had a lot lot of stuff going on in that church. And, you know, he had to correct a lot. But one of the things he writes to them is in regards to temptation. 
And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I think one of the big dangers in temptation is to think somehow yours is unique. You don't understand, Pastor. My temptation is too intense. Is it now? Well, to start with, God says it's common. And he says, I'm not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And he says, I'm going to give you a way to escape. Okay, I just ran out of excuses, didn't I? The question becomes, will we take that way of escape? Will you run when it's time to run? Or will you linger? And will you fail? Because that's what you've done. The decision comes down to being ours. And knowing what God has said about it, it would behoove us to run. You know, something else before I move on, I want to I say about temptation is this. Don't put yourself in a situation where you're going to be tempted. And people do this all the time. I'm not really sure why, but somehow they think they're going to be able to take that temptation. First of all, why do you trust yourself? And then second of all, why would you do that? Just why? It's foolish. How often, you know, I've seen this done where you'll take two people who are members of the opposite sex. They'll be alone with one another. No accountability. And then they're surprised when there is sin involved. Why? You know, most of the time when this kind of thing happens with Christians, it's because they've borne through a whole bunch of stop signs before the crash. If you look and you analyze what took place, there's all these things that they should have said, nope, no, not going, stopping. And they kept going. And then they failed. So when it comes to temptation, better if you can to simply avoid it. For Israel in this instance, it appears that they were more likely keeping the best of the spoils for themselves and not really truly for sacrifice. But you know, even if it were the case that they were looking to do this because of sacrifice, there's a problem with this, a pretty big one. You see, a sacrifice to God is supposed to be symbolic of the love and devotion the one that is offering the sacrifice has for God. And remember that Jesus said this, if you love me, keep my commandments. Therefore, you cannot simultaneously offer a sacrifice and then also disobey God. It becomes hypocritical, making the sacrifice unacceptable. This is why Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Listen, God is more concerned that our heart is right than he is with any offering that we are bringing or any outward behavior of righteousness. 
Man is uh, easily impressed when looking at the outward appearances of things. You can take a man, you can put him in a suit, and you can walk him just about anywhere. People aren't going to question him. They're not typically going to stop him. But you take that same man and you dress him like he lives in a cardboard box, and you watch what happens. He's not going to make it very far before somebody takes notice. Before they start questioning, what are they doing here? This is a fault we have, and the scripture tells us that we have this problem of judging others by the outward appearance. Just a little later in in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, you know, God being done with Saul is now going to anoint a new king. And so he sends Samuel to do that, and Samuel is looking now at David, well, I should say at Jesse, uh, David's father had seven sons, and they're being walked before Samuel. And he sees one of Jesse's sons, and he says, this surely must be God's anointed. But God says this to him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's not a little thing with God. And I think it's clear when we see Jesus calling out the religious leaders in his day for exactly this issue. He says this in Matthew 23. These are verses 27 and 8. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside you are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, uh, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, it's not to say that our actions don't matter, but our hearts need to be aligned with God for them to count with him. And this is why sacrifice without obedience is meaningless to God. You can pretend to fool everyone else around you, but you can't fool the one who made you. And maybe you're listening to this message and secretly this morning, you're in rebellion towards God on the inside. You might act like everything's all right outwardly, but you are resisting the Holy Spirit because you insist on living according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit. You wonder why you have no peace and why your conscience won't let you rest. You're frustrated because God's blessings are not upon you. But when someone asks of you, how are you doing? You'll tell them, fine. If that's you this morning, I counsel you. Stop resisting the Lord. Just repent. Allow him to bring to you the fullness of his spirit. Well, next we see Samuel comparing rebellion to witchcraft. An interesting comparison. Many of the commentators they make kind of a simple thing about it. They say, well, you know, it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? I mean, in terms of its seriousness, witchcraft and rebellion. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's a deeper meaning, actually. Because rebellion towards God is a denial of his authority. And witchcraft, likewise, refuses to acknowledge God as the sole authority of the universe. By going and seeking power and knowledge 
from an unauthorized source. And in this way, rebellion is similar to witchcraft because both deny the authority of God. Before we move on from this subject, I I ask you, have you noticed that there's this ever-increasing fascination with magic and the occult in our society? I was just looking not long ago at uh, so many programs uh, in terms of television and movies that in some way, shape, or form are centered around this very topic. And it seems the world can't get enough of it. And I think this is really a part of the devil's design to make it a, just a more acceptable and commonplace part of our world. And I think he does, he does the same thing when it comes to sexual sin and violence and perversion and greed and so much more. Let's just make it all normal. I show it to you often enough. You become callous to it. Pretty soon it's acceptable. And I think it's a technique he's been using for some time, and it's getting worse, it seems. But before we leave the subject, I want to ensure you understand what God has to say about it. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is refer- it's referred to as the Upper Desert Discourse. So Israel now is in its second generation, first generation having passed away, wandering the desert because of unbelief. They're getting ready now to go into the promised land. And now this second iteration, if you will, of the law is being given to them. And God wants them to understand this in regard to witchcraft. He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess listened to soothsayers and diviners, but you, as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Listen very carefully to what God is saying here, because you need to understand we are forbidden to dabble in any way, shape, or form with things that you are seeing today when it comes to these topics. Things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, horoscopes, fortune tellers, and the list goes on. Stay clear of it. God is explicit. You know, as a side note, Saul didn't obey God in this way either. Well, Samuel adds in his response to Saul that stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. God often referred to Israel as being stubborn and stiff-necked. The idea being that of an animal that stiffens its neck when its master is trying to guide it where it doesn't want to go. Recently, I was in a park, and I'm watching all, all the dog owners, and I love dogs. There was quite a few there that day. Some of them were pretty big. Too big, I think, for some of the owners. And uh, it was interesting to just watch as these dogs, particularly the bigger ones, are straining at the leash, trying to go in the opposite direction from their owner. And 
I thought, even then, I thought, what a picture of what it is looking at sinful man just stubbornly straining against the leash. God trying to guide us and we're pulling hard to go in the other direction. And, you know, we read these things about Israel, which I think it's easy to distance ourselves from Israel when we read these things, but how many churches have embraced the things that Israel did today? I think quite a few. Pretending to obey the word of God and doing their own thing at the same time. How many you name Christ continue to resist his commandments? We live in a time where we're seeing more and more churches who are welcoming openly sinful behavior in the church. And they're doing it under the guise of acceptance. God is love. We're trying to get people to Christ. Let them come in. Sure, you can come in. You just can't stay the way you are. God requires repentance when it comes to sin. And so while he doesn't require you're saved before you walk through this door, he does require that you have an attitude of repentance when it comes to sin. Dismissing, you know, that need to change our position about sin uh, is a direct defiance of what God's word has to say to us. I don't know how the same people that we're talking about here read these passages in Scripture and somehow come to a different idea about what God expects. I think perhaps it's because of stubbornness, which, you know, when you when you listen to the definition, is a dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position on something. Huh. Sounds a lot like being impenitent, doesn't it? It is the definition of stubbornness. But the warning in all of this is, listen, God told us this in Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end is death. You get to choose the outcome. You can do what you want to do. You think it's the right way, go your way then. But God's saying, hey, there's a price to pay in all of this. Paul wrote in Galatians that God is not mocked. A man will sow what he reaps. It's the law of the harvest, and it's inescapable. But yet, I think very often, people act as though they can sow whatever they want, and it doesn't matter. But it does. Eventually, what you plant is coming back. And if it's a harvest that you want, you'll celebrate. And if it isn't, well, you know what will happen then. Today, people use a different term for stubborn, right? We say that someone is strong-willed. I've noticed that uh, our language is changing all the time because we don't like certain terms. They're offensive, so we don't want to offend anybody anymore. I try very hard to offend people all the time. (laughs) Only because, you know, I know it's such a a politically correct thing nowadays. But it's, it's one of the things that, you know, we see happening, right? So we look at a child, for instance, and... You don't want to call the child stubborn. After all, he's so sweet. He's strong-willed. Okay. Well, that's just a positive spin that's being put on something here, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is the kid's stubborn. 
most of them are, I've noticed. Probably included us, right? Here's the thing. Stubbornness is not a virtue. So you can't spin it and say, oh, he's strong-willed as if it's some virtuous thing. Eh, yeah, well, not really. Maybe in some very specific ways being strong-willed is, but uh, in others it is not a virtue. And listen, since it's Father's Day, dads, here's a little reminder to all of you that are raising little ones. This is Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction will drive it far from them. So here's some free parenting advice for you today, brought to you by the Word of God. Well, God often referred to Israel as a stubborn people. And Ezekiel writes this in chapter 2. Then the Spirit entered me when he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation, that has rebelled against me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are an impudent and stubborn children. Well, I think that the reason that stubbornness is being equated here with iniquity and idolatry is because when we refuse to obey God out of stubbornness, it is really saying, not thy will, God, but my will be done. And in that, we are exalting ourselves to a position in which we are over God. And that is idolatrous. The lessons in Scripture, you know, they're not just a historical narrative of what happened a long time ago. They're meant to warn us of the potential that exists in all of us. And if I view these things from a lens of being self-righteous, Or if I look at this and I say it's outside the realm of me being susceptible to these kinds of things, then I'm going to miss out on the benefit of what these stories, these truths in Scripture have for me. Somehow I think that I'm above it. I'm going to find out I'm not. Most everyone, I think, at one point or another wondered why God gives us a choice to obey him or not. And the answer, I think, is that choice is the only way that obedience can exist. Because if you think about this for a minute, right? If I don't have the freedom to choose, then how will I obey God or not obey God? Because there's no concept of obedience and disobedience without choice. I also think it's important to consider the significance of God giving us the freedom to choose. Because... Listen, he's the creator of this universe. The only self-existent one who is the one who holds all power and knowledge, who is holy and pure, and he's, he's beyond our comprehension, and yet he gives to us the ability to say no to him. Why would he do that? I think there's only one reason, and that it is love. Because love cannot exist without free will. It's the reason we've been given free will. And it's the reason that Jesus equates love with obedience. Choosing to obey God is an act of love because it is a yielding of our own will to his will. I think that at its core, love is sacrificial. Remember that uh, 
God is not made better, more complete, or somehow more satisfied because of our love for him. Doesn't need it. He desires it, but doesn't require it. There's a mystery in that, that I don't know that I can understand. Why the God of this universe is interested in me expressing love to him. Yet he is. Yet his testimony is very clearly that. Furthermore, I I want us to remember that we love him because he first loved us. God is and always will be the initiator of love. Romans 5.8, Paul writes this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Quite a powerful verse to consider. Nothing about us is desirable, and yet he loves us. So much sore, he sent his son to die for us. The reality here is that God doesn't have any reason then nor now to love us. Yet, he does it as an act of his will and he has a pure motive. I believe the devil often is successful by causing us to convince us, if you will, somehow that we're going to miss out on something if we obey God. Somehow, if you do what God wants you to do, you are going to miss something. And in that, trips up many people. As if, you know, God's holding back something from us that we deserve. This God who loves us as much as he does, he's holding back something. That's the devil's ploy. So, you're authorized to go get it. When I was a young man, I was afraid of giving... I think all of my life to God because I thought, foolishly, I thought somehow that in doing so, I I might not be able to pursue what it was that I wanted in my life. I was a little afraid of what God might ask of me. And, you know, I never really considered that perhaps the only one who really knew what I wanted was God. I later learned this truth, and this comes from Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that this morning? I will tell you it is true. The moment you just turn it all over to him, that your delight is all about him, God, he gives to you the desires of your heart. It is a powerful thing to recognize took me a long time to understand this. The tendency, I think, for us is to be protective, to hold back because we're fearful. We're not trusting God as we should. And in doing so, we keep that portion of ourselves that we're afraid to give away. As we look back at our story this morning, why is it that Saul failed so miserably in the end, do you think? I think it, it's very simply because he, he loved himself more than he loved God. Jesus says this in Luke 9.24, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Are you holding back something this morning from God? Give it to him.
I promise you, you will not regret it. Saul never understood this principle of self-sacrifice. He never yielded to God, and in the end, his throne was given to a man whose life was entirely given over to God. I think the only true sacrifice that we really have to give to God is our life. And what I mean by this statement is that when we've yielded our will to that of God's, that is in the way which we give our life to him. By implication, we as believers are supposed to be stating that our life is no longer our own, but that it now belongs to God. Paul was very clear about this very thing in Galatians 2.20, writing, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, Paul gave us a picture of what this crucified life is supposed to look like when we look at how he lived. The example that we have of him in the scripture is a a powerful example. And he encourages us to do the very same thing as he writes this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This, I believe, is why Samuel says that it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we uh, consider your word this morning and we look at the importance of just yielding ourselves to you, Lord, giving ourselves in such a way as that you can use us as you see fit. Uh, Father, uh, how I pray you will help us to do just that. Our desires are often our own, and too often I think we chase after the things that are not eternal. Help us, Father. Help us to understand that uh, when we sacrifice it all to you, we've really given nothing that we will not return infinitely. Well, that you, Lord, will give to us in a way that is incomprehensible. And how we thank you for that this morning, Father. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's not made a decision to give their life to you, I pray that they would just simply ask it of you now. All you need to do is ask the Lord to save you. Simply praying, Lord God, I give my life to you here and now. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to, Lord, be the Lord of my life. If you've done that this morning, I pray that you would uh, make sure that that is known. Well, Lord, now as we conclude the service, may you bless each here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.